Well, good day to all of you. I can't help but comment as well that if our lives could be as transformed inside as this hall has been in the last week, we'd have one up. It really looks finished in here almost now. We now have to put the curtains back here, which probably will happen tomorrow or the next day, and uh, it's really going to look nice. As you know, the Passover articles have gone out <clears throat> to pretty much everywhere we had the email or addresses to send them, but there are many people around the country uh, who listen to this telephone line on Sabbath, and if you wish to see those go places, uh, you could send the addresses in to us. We do have, I think, about 200 well, by the time we get mailing out a few more, I think we may have 150 to 175 hard uh, copies of the Passover articles left, and those can be sent to various addresses. <clears throat> I don't, they don't all have to be sent right now. I, it would be nice to have a backlog for the future, but uh, between now and Passover, wherever you want it sent, if you don't have copies or... Uh, maybe just an email copy, but you need them sent to a place where they don't have an email, let us know and we'll be happy to mail them out from here. <clears throat> I would like to see this distributed as far as wide and wide as possible between now and Passover so that people can either reject it immediately or read it and reject it later or read it and see that it is correct. Uh, I've been getting all kinds of responses, and it's added pain and argument to my life uh, because I'm getting all kinds of theories, and people are sending some of their papers, which I think this paper clearly disproved, but all kinds of things such as uh, the, the day actually begins at sunup, and on and on and on it goes uh, with thoughts and ideas that people have. Someone sent me a paper showing that uh, we're supposed to be going by a solar calendar only and that therefore March 28th is always Passover. It can only vary from that by one day, despite Genesis 1.14 saying that the sun and the moon uh, constitute the calendar. <clears throat> so it's a lunisolar calendar, but they're denying a lot of things that the scriptures actually say. But the burden is that somehow, some way, I need to respond and answer these, and I can see lots of hours of midnight oil ahead in trying to accomplish that. On the other hand, I think I can answer a lot of it by simply finishing our calendar booklet and sending it to them because it will contain the answers to the things that they are projecting to us. So I would appreciate your prayers on this whole thing. I think it is a very critical doctrine for us to understand and for the church to understand, and it could be a very key thing in the future of the church. So the wider we distribute it, the better off we are. I've been trying to reach Cal and Bobby Morton by phone over and over, but uh, you have cell phones out there, and I don't know whether you can be connected. Uh, please, if you hear this and, and can, give me a call. 
Otherwise, we'll, uh, I'll write you about some information that you need to have regarding Passover. So if you get a chance, give me a call if you hear this. Uh, again, on the hall here, I do appreciate all that is going on both inside and outside in terms of gardening and cleanup and, and fix-up. And uh, we're, we're beginning to look, at least on the outside of the cup, more godly around here. And that is very much appreciated. Of course, the inside of the cup is always more important, but at the same time, uh, it is nice to have things looking better, and many, many of you have contributed to that. <clears throat> now let's go back to Isaiah. I will comment on the horrible thing that happened in Wisconsin as we get into this, but I do want to begin where we left off, or actually a little bit before we left off. I had a, a, a letter from another continent that came yesterday, and it was a very fine letter from one of our members, <coughs> but in there it made the comment that someone had passed word around that my sermons never varied. Uh, that it was the same old thing over and over again, I think, was the implication. I don't know that that is necessarily bad. We've covered a lot of different subjects. I mean, didn't I spend enough weeks on child-rearing that you all got nauseated? Uh, that didn't have anything to do with the prophecies particularly. I mean, we, we do vary things from time to time and get into different things. But notice where we were last week in Isaiah 64. It begins with a plea that God would rend the heavens and come down and, and bring to pass all the things that the prophecies tell us about. And how wonderful the things are in verse uh, 4 that he has prepared for us so that it's beyond even our imagination. And then he shows in verse 6, we are all not some of us, but all of us, is unclean, filthy rags, and our righteousness amounts to that. Isaiah 54, the last verse, I think, says that those he begins to bless will have his righteousness, not their own. His right, the righteousness is of him, not of them. That we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away from God. Notice verse 7, there is none that calls upon his name that strengthens himself to take hold, to really take hold of God. It's, it's, there is a dearth of people today who will really, with all their hearts, take hold of God. There will be some faithful, a faithful remnant at the end. We've seen that in many scriptures. But when God looks down, it's as if the whole world has gone the other way. It's as if the whole church is in limbo and not really taking hold of him. Then he says that he is the father, we're the clay, he's our potter. Verse 9, be not angry, very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech you, we are all your people. We are looking at a church that has been blown apart by the anger of God. And we are pleading that he will not continue this, reminding him that we are his people, 
lest we be destroyed. Verse 10, your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. The churches, by and large, are being destroyed and continue to divide. People continue to fall away. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Now that is a general statement of what is going on right now in the churches of God. What about those people in Wisconsin last week when about the time this was being read, or shortly thereafter their time, a deranged man, obviously demon-influenced if not possessed, opened fire on a congregation of 50 to 60 people in the living church of God. Would those people today believe this verse more than you and I believed it when we read it last week? Is their holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you burned up with fire, gunfire in this case, and all our pleasant things are laid waste? That congregation today is devastated, has been all week. People are wondering why it is on their lips. It is on the lips of people around the country and around the world who have heard of this in the church. Why would God allow such a thing to happen in the church of God? I have heard the question asked on the news, in print, and I know, and I've heard it asked here, it is a question that is on the minds of many, many people, especially those who have friends and relatives who were in danger that day, and in fact, some killed that day, and now there are grieving families, grieving friends, a grieving church, seeking answers to very perplexing questions that are perhaps very difficult to answer. I had an interesting experience this morning. I just flipped my Bible open. I was going to head for Isaiah eventually, but I just flipped it open. And I happened to fall on Psalm 60. Now, I'm not saying God guided the pages. What I am saying is I want to, sh to look at that a little bit. And let's see if we need more variation in our sermons. Now, leading up to Psalm 60, verse 58 says, Do you indeed, or chapter 58 says, Do you indeed speak righteousness, O, J o congregation? Do you judge uprightly, O you sons of men? We've seen many, many scriptures which show that there is a lack of proper judgment, a lack of proper treatment of people in the church today. Yes, in heart you work wickedness, you weigh the violence of your hands in the earth. It goes on and on to explain how people tend to live according to human nature and human pressures. There's a plea 
Let's see. Well, let, let's go on. Let's go on down to chapter 60. That's where it opens. Oh God, you have cast us off. You have scattered us. You have been displeased. Oh, turn yourself to us again. Does that sound anything like Isaiah? You could take that verse out and stick it back in the ones we've been reading in Isaiah and it fit perfectly. It says essentially the same thing we've been reading. Anywhere you open this book, the story is the same. The whole Bible is about man's relationship with God starting in the Garden of Eden. How man almost immediately turned against God, away from God. Now Adam and Eve wouldn't have said that they didn't like God or that they despised God. They would not have pronounced those words. But in action, indeed, they turned away from the ways of God and to something that appealed to them. The Bible from Genesis 2 and 3 to Revelation 22 is the same story repeated over and over throughout the history of mankind. More particularly of Israel and even more particularly of spiritual Israel as we go on through the story. And the same fate has befallen every generation of mankind that befell Adam and Eve. There is a constant struggle, a constant spiritual warfare between God, human nature, and Satan who preys upon human nature. That is what the whole thing is about. Now one of the things that was a pressure point that this fellow apparently responded to was a sermon given showing that there's spiritual warfare going on. Now that may or may not have been the pressure point that set him off, I do not know. But Ephesians tells us that our warfare is spiritual. And we wrestle not against principalities, or that we wrestle against the principalities and powers of the air, against demons and against our human nature. That is a story throughout the Bible. And mankind generally has lost that battle. From Adam and Eve, through the whole generations that died in the flood, most of them were still alive because they lived almost a thousand years then, when the flood occurred. You can go throughout the history of mankind, move from there to the Tower of Babel soon thereafter, move forward through Israel and its history, and how God made a covenant with them and married them, and they were an unfaithful wife and had to be divorced. Read about the early New Testament church that was formed on good, sound principles by Jesus Christ himself and within 70 years had virtually disappeared from off the face of the earth. The, new, the Middle Ages are somewhat sketchy in history, but look at the history of the end-time church, founded on essentially good principles, proper knowledge, to a degree at least, of God's word, and within 70 years, it is quickly disappearing from off the face of the earth. God told us right at the end time that he would spew the church out because of Laodiceanism, lackadaisical attitudes, and spiritual pride. 
and it is happening as we stand here, or as I stand and you sit. Verse 2, you have made the earth to tremble, you have broken it, heal the breaches thereof, for it shakes. Don't we read of healing the breaches in Isaiah 58, and if we will fast for the right reasons and reach out to others, that we will be called the healers of the breach and restorers of paths to walk in? Does the message change? The book of Psalms is a very prophetic book. You have given a banner to them that fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Does he not say he will set up Zerubbabel as a banner, an ensign, a flag of truth to the church at the end? That right as it is being scattered, he will begin to draw a remnant together, as the book of Haggai says. I haven't gone back and gone through the Psalms to show this story. I took six months on Isaiah. How long would it take in Psalms? But the story is the same. I wasn't saying God flipped the Bible open for me to Psalm 60 this morning. All I did was open my Bible and I found the exact same story we've been reading in Isaiah and the Minor Prophets and reading in the New Testament and reading in the book of Revelation. It's the same everywhere. Now if that message is the same and God says it over and over and over and over again... Do you not think that he intended someone to begin to think and to get it and to do something about it? I think so. If God repeats something this many times, we could go on. I mean, the story is the same. Psalm 60, 61, 62, 63, it's all the same. I'm not going to take the time to go through it all at the moment. But the message that you've been hearing the last over nine years is repeated throughout the scriptures. In Isaiah 64, we find ourselves in this situation where the churches are being destroyed. Now let's address in that light what happened in Wisconsin last weekend. The spin on this, first of all, will probably be Satan is after us because we're doing the work. I suspect that is the spin that will be put on this by those involved. Satan is trying to stop the work. That is partially, I think, correct. Satan is certainly trying to destroy any work that God would be doing on the earth. And when he is cast down from heaven, the very first thing he's going to do is chase the true church, the faithful remnant, to a place of safety and send an army after it. First thing he's going to do, Revelation 12. So he is going to try to stop God's work. But what is God's work right now? Some claim to be the two witnesses, but they're still out trying to convert the world. Is that what God says for the two witnesses to do? No, Revelation 11, 1 and 2, which introduces them, 
says, forget the world, the Gentiles, measure the altar, and then the worship there, the ministry and the church. Zechariah 3 and 4, talking about the same two men, says to feed all seven churches. They do that before they ever go to the world. So if anyone claims to be one of or more of the two witnesses, two, three, four, or more, I've met quite a few of them in my life, then they need to be doing what God says, not what they think is the right thing to be doing. So first of all, we need to find what the true work of God at the end is. Now that is the work that Satan will be trying to stop first and foremost. But I think that is the spin that will probably be placed on this. Now I could see another spin that perhaps should be attached and gives us more of an understanding. Yes, Satan is after any and everyone who would obey God. I have no doubt of that and no problem with that. But could we also say God may be continuing to chasten the church to wake us up? Could that spin possibly fit as well? Remember Job? That was a situation really between God and Job, or in a larger sense, God and man, if you please. God used Satan to do something about the relationship between God and Job. Satan did not go to Job on his own. God said to Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? God sicked Satan on Job. He wanted Job to learn something. Now I do not believe that with those in the church of God, time and chance happens. With those whom God is working, certainly he counts the heads of their hair. Not even a sparrow falls that he does not know about it. And he is shown that we are the apple of his eye, if he has called us and is working at choosing today. That he is very, very intimately concerned with our lives. Therefore, any tragedy such as happened in Wisconsin, God could have stopped before it ever happened. How many times has God maybe stopped things from happening in the church of God in the end time and before? We have no way of knowing. We can all probably look at our lives and see where God may have delivered us. I can think of many times in my life, and I've done a lot of things, where I should have died. But God probably wasn't finished with me yet. And if I know me, I know he wasn't finished with me yet because I've got a long way to go. And you can probably do the same. Things that happened in your life could have ended your life very easily. 
for some reason, you're still alive. I'm sure Job was saying, why would God allow this? God gave Satan opportunity to do absolutely anything to Job that he conceived to do other than just take his life. He could torture him. He could kill all his children. He could turn his wife against him. He could take all his flocks and herds, have his servants killed. Satan could do absolutely anything to Job he wanted but kill him. He could put boils all over his body so that he was in absolute unbearable pain. He was allowed to do anything. Was this by time and chance? No. God knew Job needed to learn something. And he sick Satan on him purposely to teach him something. Did that thing happen in Wisconsin in a vacuum and God was happening to look somewhere else or was asleep and did not know what was about to happen? No, it did not. He was very aware. He allowed it to happen. Now, it was a terrible tragedy from our standpoint. Should we allow it to pass without learning something? Should we blame Rod Meredith or Living Church of God or those people who are obviously must have been sinners in Wisconsin or whatever attitude we might take? No. It happened within the Church of God. Some branch of the Church of God. Some people whom God has called out. They're all our brothers and sisters. And we should love them very deeply, not condemn them, but if one suffers, they all suffer. If one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And I don't think it is our place to say, well, they must be sinning terribly, because if it happened within the church of God, it happened to you and to me. And it is a wake-up call not just for them, but for us. They all slumbered and slept at the end. So if there's a wake-up call involved, it's not just to them, it's to us. It's to all of us. God continues to scatter. Let me ask you a question. What if those seven people that were slain by that gunman last Sabbath had instead of being shot and physically killed had simply left the church? What if they had denied God and gone back into the world? Would it have been on the news? Would it have been in the journal? Would it have been on church websites? Would I be standing here talking about it today? No. No. People leave the church continually now, don't they? They fall away by the thousands today. Which is the greater tragedy? Seven people leaving God, or leaving the church and God, or being physically mowed down? That's a no-brainer. 
Throwing away salvation by leaving God in his word is a far greater tragedy than being physically killed. Why did Christ say, think not to save your life physically? Those who seek to save it will lose it, and those who seek God will gain it. The reasons, I believe, that God allowed this are rooted in what we just read in Isaiah 64. That he is angry, that he has turned his face from the church, that he wants us all to wake up. He tells all seven churches in the book of Revelation to overcome, to repent, including Philadelphia. They also must overcome if you consider yourself a Philadelphian to this day. They, too, must overcome. What? God did not specify, for the most part, there. But he did say overcome. So, Philadelphians have problems, too, right? Even though most who consider themselves Philadelphians today do not really consider that they have spiritual problems. I say it's rooted here. Let's go back to Isaiah 33. We've already covered this in this series. Well, actually, 32 is what I want. And let's begin in verse 9. Rise up, you women that are at ease. Are you churches that are coasting along, taking it easy, not really doing much in terms, I think, of spiritual growth? Hear my voice, you careless daughters. God says, listen to me. Open your Bibles. Listen to what God has to say. Many are going by a few verses that they memorized 40, 50, 60 years ago, 30 years ago, or whatever, about preaching the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end will come. And they don't understand what it's talking about. They're careless. They're not reading these scriptures that say what is happening to the church and why or they think that it does not apply to them. Give ear to my speech. Many days and years shall you be troubled, or days above a year. You careless women, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. It just seems like it won't come. It just gets worse and worse. Tremble, you women that are at ease. Be troubled, you careless ones. Strip you and make you bare, and gird sackcloth upon your loins. They shall lament for the tits, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the blessings that have disappeared and gone. Upon the land of my people shall come thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city, that is, Jerusalem, the church. All the houses of worship in the church are going to suffer. Because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the cities shall be left, the forts and towers shall be for dens, for even a joy of wild asses, a pasture for flocks. And this will continue until God begins to pour out his blessing from on a high in verse 15. What we see is a physical tragedy on the heels of a spiritual tragedy that has already been occurring for the last two decades. Something God has already started, but which is now becoming physical. And it is not going to cease, it will get worse. 
Persecution and martyrdom will come. The great tribulation will come. And it does appear from Scripture, and I won't go through all those again today, that approximately 90% of the church will go into the tribulation, and many, many of them will die there. So physical death may just now be starting, but it will continue. Zechariah 11 says that three major churches, three major trees, three major ministries or ministers, whether speaking of individuals or organizations remains to be seen, will be torn down, destroyed in a month. What we saw in Wisconsin may only be the very beginning of some of these things. And it could happen to us just as easily as to them. Now, what is the proper response? What should we do? It has been suggested that we ought to have somebody packing guns to church just in case something like that happened here. Is that the answer? I suppose I could put a couple of pistols here under the podium, and maybe I could build me a little rack here and put a Winchester Defender, one of those shotguns that holds 12 shots, and I could have it right here at hand in case somebody burst in the door or stood up in the congregation and started shooting. Is that the right answer? What has happened in the past when man has depended upon the sword to protect himself instead of to God. You can go through many scriptures, and I could make a whole sermon out of it and show this, but it's very clear throughout the history of Israel that when they depended upon horses and chariots or upon the arm of man, it angered God. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. The response we need to have is that if God is going to allow this kind of thing to start to happen in the church, and he has, and it will continue and get worse, that being the case, should we arm ourselves? We already know that someday the government, whether it be the government of the United States or the government of the world, is going to come after any who are faithful and true to God and try to kill them all. The Jerusalem, the true church, the remnant, will be surrounded by armies and will have to flee for their life. Now we have, I guess, an option. We could arm ourselves to the teeth and fill bins full of ammunition and prepare ourselves so that when the government comes after us, we could defend ourselves, or we could do what God said and leave everything behind, including the gun that might be in the car or the house, and flee for our lives, and that he will protect us. The just shall live by faith. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, we have seen something happen, which is to us a tragedy, and certainly to those families and loved ones and friends, it is almost unbearable. And our prayers should go up to them that they be able to handle this and get the right perspective on it and not to give up on God. But what? They and we need to take hold of God with all our heart. We need to be obedient to all the rules and the laws and the suggestions and the hints of God. We need to be building our relationship as we have never built it before. We need to take hold of Christ, as it says here in Isaiah 64, that none are doing. And not let Him go. If we do not do that, what happened there could easily happen here. If we do that, maybe we can pray and God will have mercy. He is seeking those who will trust Him. He is seeking those who will put their lives in His hands and who will obey Him. He is seeking those who will do something that almost all the roughly 60 billion people who have ever lived on this earth have failed to do. He is rounding out 144,000 out of 60 billion to be the bride of the Lamb. And he wants those people to have the faith of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He wants those people to have the mercies and the tenderness and the love of David and the repentance of David. He is looking for people who will turn their hearts to him and to the fathers of old who did obey. They were few and far between, but they're there. God wants us to turn to him with our whole heart and pray that we be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming in the end time. Are we any better than those in Wisconsin? Not in any form or fashion. Those who died are no longer in danger. Now, depending upon age and conversion, they may very well be in the first resurrection. If they were younger, they may well be in the second resurrection. If they were there but not converted, not really understanding, did not have God's Spirit begotten in them, maybe they'll still be in the second resurrection. Those are judgments God will make. By no means do I think they were lost or are lost because they didn't understand what you or I might believe or somebody else here who believes that the day starts with sunup believes or whatever our belief might be, they were still a part of the church of God. Remember Revelation 2 and 3. Maybe I'll go back there and give you a couple of examples. There are some very, very serious problems enumerated in Revelation 2 and 3 within the umbrella or under the umbrella of what God defines as his church. And he tells all seven of those churches or those attitudes that if they will overcome 
they will receive the blessings of being in his kingdom as it is described here in many, many different ways. I want to pick out just one example to give you, and that's in Revelation 2.18, maybe I'll give you two. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God. Now this is one of the churches extant today. I think I adequately proved that in a series of articles in the Forerunner some years back and have touched upon it since. They are not just tail, nose-to-tail churches that existed from early New Testament days until today. Laodiceanism certainly is the most obvious and the most flagrant and the commonest attitude in the church today. But all of the attitudes in all these other churches are also extant today within the church. These things, says the Son of God, who has, who has his eyes like to a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works and love and service and faith and your patience. There were some good things about Thyatira. And your works, and the last to be more than the first. Works are important, obviously. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication, and idolatry. All things that are happening within the church today. Now, I don't think there's any church of God that's teaching us to fornicate or to commit adultery or that we ought to have idols. But by example and by the lives that we're living and by a laxness in teaching, in many cases we're encouraging those very things, not to be faithful to God and to put other things ahead of God. So that is happening within the church today. And I gave her space to repent of her disloyalty or fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then commit adultery with her into great tribulation. The church of Thyatira is going into the great tribulation, or at least many of them. So the great tribulation is at the end. It wasn't the Middle Ages. It's at the end. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. All the churches will see what happens to Thyatira. That to me means that all the churches are here today to see whatever happens to those who have the attitudes and the works, the bad ones at least, of Thyatira. All the churches will see that. Well, if this is something that happened six, seven, eight hundred years ago, the churches that occurred before that were all dead and gone and couldn't see it. And if it came afterward, then we could not be eyewitnesses to what happened either because we weren't around yet. This is something that happens that all the churches see. Now, if all the churches see what happens to Thyatira... Should not all the churches watch, take heed, and be warned by such? Now, I'm not saying that living church of God is Thyatira by any means. Don't anyone think that I'm implying that. I'm not. 
I'm saying that whatever happens to any of the churches of God here at the end are something that will be observed by all the other churches. And that it should be a witness and a wake-up call and a warning to us that we need to turn to God with our whole hearts. It says of Sardis, you have a name that you are living, but you are dead, spiritually dead. Now, is that a bigger problem than being physically dead? Yes, it certainly is. We cannot afford to be spiritually dead. We're playing with and treating our inheritance very lightly if we do that. What did Esau do? What was his big problem? Esau took for granted and took very lightly what could have been his. And we have the attitude of Esau if we take lightly any of the instruction of God in this book. We cannot afford to be spiritually asleep or spiritually dead. And it says we all slumbered and slept. Why does Isaiah 52 give us a wake-up call, Isaiah 51 and 52? Why does it say, pay attention to your Savior in Isaiah 53? The reason is so that you can have the blessings of Isaiah 54 and 55. That's why. So if something tragic like this happens in any one of the churches, we should all be aware. We should all take it as a warning and turn to God with our whole hearts. We cannot defend ourselves against the government if it comes after us. David Koresh and his followers had guns and ammo. Did that do them any good? No. We know that our bigger attack is going to come on the faithful remnant of God's church. Would having guns and ammo do us any good? No, we're not here to fight the government. We're here to obey God and his government. That's what we're here for. I don't have anything to do with the U.S. government except pay my taxes. Essentially, I'm not for them or against them. I'm here to be an ambassador for Christ. I'm here to obey God. I am essentially unconcerned about what they do or when they do it or how they do it. My politics are in heaven. My Father is in heaven. I'm here to do His will and His way and fulfill His purposes. So I'm not going to vote for them and I'm not going to vote against them in that sense. I am here to do a job for God in my life and in the lives of those whom I might touch. That's what we're here for. And if we please God, ultimately we will be protected if he accounts us worthy. But this could happen anywhere. It could happen just as easily in any other of the churches, including this one, as it did there. That's where someone who got deranged and offbeat mentally decided to take things into his own hands for whatever reasons. And God allowed it. He passed on it. 
I don't think it was just for that congregation of 50 or 60. I don't think it was those seven who died because God wanted those seven dead. It could have easily, just as easily been seven others in the room. Or it could have been only three. Or it could have been 33. Or 50 or 60, if he had been armed enough. It wasn't time and chance that it happened, and I'm sure he had a specific family probably in mind, in part. It reminds me of often when there's an airplane crash or a train wreck or something where there's a great deal of loss of life, and maybe you have a few survivors, and they'll come out of the plane saying, or the train saying, only God saved me. Only by the grace of God am I still walking. They bring it down to the personal level. And I say, well, what about those that died? Were you so much better than they? That God saved you and allowed all them to die? I don't think so. I, I look at an airplane full of people, or sometimes I've looked around the waiting room before boarding a plane, and looked at the faces and the people there and thought, we're all going up there together. We could all come down together. Am I any better than those people sitting there, reading in their U.S. Today, USA Today or whatever they're doing, eating their last meal of Burger King before they go on the plane? Am I any better than them? No, not by any means. These things happen. God passed on it and allowed it. A man under that pressure could have been anywhere. I remember thinking back when I was in Florida in the early 60s, or late 60s actually, and there were four, five, six hundred people in the room, and I would be preaching, and I thought, what if somebody burst in here and started killing people? What would I do? I mean, these things have played out in my mind many times over the years, because there is always that danger that something like that could happen. And now, these many years later, it has. I imagine a lot in the ministry, and probably people have wondered what to do in that scenario. And I think the answer is we really need to get close to God and to be able to trust Him faithfully to take care of us. We need to understand what is going on in the church today. That is, that God is angry because of our Laodiceanism, and that includes all who slumbered and slept. And for anyone to say they are not slumbering and sleeping, that they are the Philadelphians, don't have a clue as to what God is doing on this earth and in the church today. They are clueless. We understand what God is doing through all these scriptures, and we will be held accountable for that. Now, God may allow some of these things to happen in some places so that people might have a chance to get a clue, that they might have a chance to open their Bible and begin to try to answer the questions that are in their mind this very day. Why would God allow this to happen? Will they walk on and never think it through study it through, and find the answer? 
Or will they become so frustrated and upset and need an answer so badly that they'll open this book and begin to search and find out why God would allow such a thing to happen? He tells us in here he's angry. He tells us he's going to send most of us into the tribulation. And that includes you and me if we don't repent. The only advantage you and I have today is that we've searched these scriptures and we know what God is doing. Now, we need to answer the question, what will we do about it? Now, God is going to begin to show the churches that he is God and that he is displeased. He is already scattered to a great degree. But what he is about to do is far worse to the churches than what we have experienced so far. We have only seen the tip of the iceberg. He said we will find him when we seek him with our whole hearts. And that is true of living, it's true of united, it's true of Philadelphia, it's true of the Church of God of the Eternal, it's true of a congregation of the Church of God, it's true of everyone everywhere. God has people throughout all the churches who are going to be willing to seek him with their whole heart, and he is going to bring them together as a faithful remnant. That is script, that sort, that scenario, that story is very, very clear in Scripture. And you and I can be a part of that. Or we can be a part of the increasing tragedies that are going to occur in God's church. It isn't over yet. We have seen thousands and tens of thousands dying spiritually, and it hasn't shaken us up for the most part. Then when we see people dying physically, we get worried. No, our worry needs to be spiritually, not physically. We need to respond to God spiritually and then trust in his physical protection as a result and have faith and belief in that because we are walking in faith. Now, I do not know that what happened up there was a specific punishment to those specific people at all. God may have chosen or allowed that to happen to people who are going to be in the first resurrection. He may not have allowed it to happen or might not have allowed it to happen to some people in that very room who might not be on their way to the first resurrection or the second because they need time to repent and overcome. So the ones that died could be one, in one of two categories. They could have been terrible sinners that God wanted to get rid of, which I don't believe. Or they could also be righteous martyrs. Don't we read in the pages of the Bible that there will be many, many who die physically as righteous martyrs? Isn't that what happened to Stephen and Peter and Paul? All the apostles but John? Some will die in faithfulness and righteousness. 
Others will die for repentance and sin in the great tribulation that is coming. Only God knows which category each and every one who dies is in. Only he can judge. So I'm not here to condemn anyone. I'm here to say that this simply underlines and prints in bold the things that we have been studying and learning in the scriptures. That we had best turn to God with our whole heart. And if those people died, and any good is to come of it, is that it is that those who lived, including us, will take it that we need to change our lives. But it's a wake-up call for all those who slumber and sleep and who are lackadaisical. That doesn't mean that those people necessarily were that. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I didn't know them, I don't know them, I don't know the whole context. But I know that the whole church is that way. Our prayers should be going up for friends and neighbors and relatives and for the ministry that is there to handle this. I assume that Rod Meredith, Dick Ames, Charles Bryce, whoever else might be considered important in that organization, were probably on the very next plane to Chicago or Milwaukee. I would assume that because with the tragedy of that magnitude, those people need help, they need answers. And I hope and pray that those men, if they got there that quickly, which they should have, and I assume did, or if they arrived a day or two or three later, whatever, I hope that they're armed with the right kind of encouragement and strengthening that those people need. And I would pray that God will give them that. Maybe it's a wake-up call to the ministry to understand what God's people are going through and what God's people are about to go through and to give them the powerful inspiration, encouragement, and strength they need to face the trying days that are ahead. We all know that the ministry has not been what it ought to be and that we have a lot of changing to do. So it's a wake-up call for me. It's a wake-up call for Nelson and for Gordon and for everyone else. that we might turn to God with our whole heart. So let's not let this pass without shaking us up. It's too bad that when someone turns loose of God, we don't consider it the same tragedy as someone who is physically killed. Physically killed is very, very hard on friends and relatives. But spiritually killed goes far deeper. And we are in danger of slumbering on through. One of the major lessons of Passover is don't sleep through the sacrifice of Christ. Don't sleep and miss out on your Savior. Don't sleep at the end time when your Savior is about, the Savior is about to come. Watch and pray always that you be accounted worthy to escape these things. See, we're in the same danger Right now, today, those disciples were who went to sleep while Christ prayed for his life. 
Our lives are on the line today. And Jesus Christ is coming back. This time, he won't die. But if we are not watchful and vigilant, we could. That's the difference. So it's time to be wide awake and not stumbling on as those who are in darkness. That's what Isaiah 64 is talking about. Well, I didn't mean to make this the whole sermon. But I'll go back to Isaiah 64 again. We must remember, verse 8, that he is the potter, we are the clay. He's our father. And to yield ourselves to him, not too stiff and pride in human nature, but not too limp that we cannot be molded and made. To stand up and not let his words fall to the ground, but to live them and let him mold us and make us in his image. And pray that he not continue his anger, but he said he will, his anger will depart in one day. and He'll forgive our sins as a cloud that is removed. And he will begin to bless us in one day. So we have those promises to look forward to. We have the wilderness and the desolation today. And, and things are a mess. And it says at the end of chapter 64, Will you refrain yourself for these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very sore? Will these things continue, or is there an answer? Let's go on in chapter 65. I am sought of them that ask not for me. There are people who were not really looking for God, who are at some point going to wake up and begin to seek Him. They were just going on, but they'll be waked up. Something is going to happen that will wake them up. I am found of them that sought me not. Some are going to find Him who weren't really looking. I said, Behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. What is the message at the end? Go back to Isaiah 40. Cry aloud. Tell my people, Behold your God. Let them know who God is, what He's doing. That is the message for the end time. It's what's repeated right here. Behold me. He says it twice. Behold me. Get your attention on me, not things on this earth. To a nation that was not called by my name. Now what did God call us? He says, I look at you, Israel, and you look like your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite or vice versa. I look at you and I, you look like a bunch of Gentiles to me. You don't look like spiritual Israel. You look like spiritual Gentiles. It's a prophecy. It's not just about ancient Israel. It's for today. God looks to see people in His image and He sees people in the image of Babylon. And He says, you don't look like my people. You don't look like you'd be called by my name. You look like you'd be called by a bunch of Hittite or Amorite names. I have spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. He's talking to the church and to physical Israel, spiritual and physical Israel here, dually, speaking to both at the same time. 
You walked in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. He says to get our feet off his Sabbath at the end of Isaiah 58, not to think our own thoughts or seek our own pleasures. Thoughts of vanity. What is the end-time church characterized as in Revelation 3? Laodicean. They all slumbered and slept. They were all lackadaisical. They all had spiritual pride and vanity and thought that they were doing just fine, thank you, didn't need anything. That is the attitude of most of the churches, the organizations, and the ministry today. And it's what they are spreading to their people. God doesn't like that. A people that provokes me to anger continually to my face, that sacrifices in gardens and burns incense upon altars of bricks. In other words, idolatry, putting other things ahead of God. Whether it be foods or sports or recreation or self or clothes or looks or anything physical, whatever your, our gods might be. <coughs> Would you remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments? which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Many in the church have gone back to eating swine's flesh specifically. But swine's flesh is just a, a picture or a type of anything unclean. Which say, stand by yourself, come not near to me, for I am holier than you. There's some humility for you. But that is the attitude of most people in most congregations of the church of God today. I'm a Philadelphian, you're a Laodicean, I'm holier than you, stay away from me. That is the overall attitude of nearly every organization in the church today. I hope it is not the attitude of us here. If it is, we'd better repent. We had better recognize that we are not complete and entire and in need of nothing. We had better realize that all our righteousness is as filthy minstrel's claws. That we had better turn to God. That's the message here. Holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all the day. When anyone says, we are better than you, that is, we're Philadelphian, you're Laodicean, that is smoke in God's nose. Do you know what you do when you get smoke in your nose? You blow your nose. That's what God is doing. He uses the analogy of spewing out of his mouth. But this fits too. Blow it out your nose. That's what God is doing. Until that attitude is changed, this will continue. If we have that attitude, we will be blown out God's nose or his mouth. It's just that simple. We cannot let it infect us. The minute we are beginning to think we're something special, we're not. The minute you think you're spiritually okay, you're not. 
Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense to their own bosom. God is going to turn that attitude of self-righteousness and spiritual pride right back on any who have it. And it's not going to be pleasant. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Eternal, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their, to their bosom. What we've done, the attitudes we've projected are going to come right back on us. We'd better be humble and meek and righteous. God's righteousness. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, destroy it not. In other words, it was about to be thrown out. What does God say in Matthew 24, verse 22? Matthew 24, verse 22. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. I'm about to throw it all out, just as in the days of Noah. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. For the sake of a few who will obey, God is not going to wipe all mankind out. But he's about ready to. That's what's being said here in Isaiah 65, verse 8. Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. The wine might appear putrid and ready to be thrown out. But God says, wait a minute, there's a few there. So will I do, he says, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, inherit an inheritor of my mountains, and my elect shall inherit it. Exact same word he used in Matthew 24, 22. And my servants shall dwell there, and Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, that is the valley of trouble, a place for the herds to lie down in, that is safety, well fed and safe, for my people that have sought me. Here's how it's going to turn out. If we will be wicked and prideful and spiritually vain, we'll get it all right back in our bosom and it'll be hot. But if we obey and serve God with our whole heart, we'll be safe and well-fed. We have a choice. That is, if we are going to be saved, the only thing we can do is obey God. If we go the other way, we're in trouble. But you are they that forsake the eternal, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, or gad, big bunch of people, and that furnish the drink offering to that number. In other words, we consider the around and the people around us and our friends and neighbors and relatives, but we forget God. Each organization becomes something to itself, but does not put God first. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. Most will not answer. We've seen in Scripture, time after time, that only 10%, a small remnant of that, will respond to God. The rest will go into tribulation. Be numbered to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear. But did evil before my eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. 
Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Which category do you and I wish to be in? What are we going to do about it? Are we going to be his servants, or will we serve ourselves in the world? Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. It's coming down to a time when it's going to be too late to do anything about it, brethren. I think we're getting fairly close to that time. Remember Revelation 22:11. He that is unjust, unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, my, my reward is with me. And I will give every man according as his work shall be. And then he tells us to keep the commandments. Parting shot in the Bible is keep the commandments. After all has been said and done, and all that has been taken away or done away has been done away, or all that which is preserved has been preserved, the last message is keep my commandments. And he names the ten, or parts of the ten, to let you know which ones he's talking about. Isaiah 65 and 66 are leading up to the return of Christ in the millennium, just as Revelation 22:11 is leading up to the return of Christ in the millennium. So John is saying what Isaiah said many, many, many centuries before that. But it's going to come the point where it's too late. Those who will obey God will be blessed, and those who don't are going to be in trouble. And you shall leave your name for a curse to my chosen, verse 15, doesn't he tell us in Zechariah that they will, or Malachi, that they will be ashes under the feet of the righteous? You shall leave your name for a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God shall slay you and call his servants by another name. Doesn't he tell us in Revelation 2 and 3, we'll receive a new name. That he who blessed himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. If you want a blessing, bless yourself in the God of truth. And he that swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Notice the context here goes straight from the destruction of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous to a new heaven and a new earth. That's the context. We don't have an intervening period of a millennium and a hundred year period and then a destruction of the earth after all who saved are going, that are going to be saved have been saved and the lake of fire has occurred and then a new heaven and new earth is created no way that, that the context here does not allow that nor does the specific uh, things that are mentioned in the rest of this chapter allow that I'm not going to go into the whole thing here uh, at this moment it's in the series, How Exclusive is the Church? I think the last two or three sermons there cover the new heavens and the new earth and show that it is at the beginning of the millennium that that occurs. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. 
comes first to the church, comes second to those who live into the millennium. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now that's talking about the 144,000 who are changed when Christ returns. That's mentioned in Revelation 21. It's speaking of the bride, the Lamb's wife here, prepared as a bride, verse 2. Talks about the bride as the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down, as a bride adorned for her husband. And God will dwell with them, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. But it's talking about the bride. Her pain, her grief, her tears are over. The tears, the pain, for those who come later will not be over. It's talking about us here in chapter 65 of Isaiah. Verse 20, there shall be no more thence an infinite days, looking forward on into the millennium here. Nor an old man that has not filled his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Is there still pain and fear and sorrow and tears for the sinner in the new heavens and new earth? Yes, there is. There are sinners in the new heavens and the new earth. He introduced the new heavens and the new earth in verse 17, and he's still talking about a hundred-year-old sinner. There will be sinners in the new heavens and the new earth who have to repent, or they will die accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. Well, the old view we had of the new heavens and the new earth was everybody human would be gone, and only those who survived the burning of the earth and the stars would remain. But here he's introduced the new heavens and the new earth, and he's talking about people living a hundred years and building houses and inhabiting them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. All these new houses that are going up around the country are going to be emptied out. They're building these houses, but they're not going to inhabit them. They're going to be turned out of them. They're going to be killed, taken captive, but not during the millennium. They shall not plant it another eat, for as the days of a tree are the days of my people. They'll live long like a tree, hundred years. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal, and their offspring with them. This shows babies being born in the new heavens and the new earth. Has to be at the beginning of the millennium. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. God will pay attention then. Notice verse 25. Why don't we read this, the Feast of Tabernacles? We read Isaiah 11. It says the same thing. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Eternal. Do I have time to get through the rest of this today? 
Got how much? About 15 minutes left on the tape. Let's go for it. Chapter 66. It, it continues the thought, really, and this is such an inspiring part of this book. Thus says the Eternal, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What? This is the new heavens and new earth, and he says, heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. Or the new heavens and new earth have just been introduced in chapter 65. Where is the house that you build to me, and where is the place of my rest? Well, wait a minute. He's still in heaven at this point, and the earth is still his footstool. He, 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 uh, he flashes back here a little bit. He gives us a, a picture of the new heavens and new earth, and people and offspring and houses being built, and then he flashes back. Chapter 66 ends very positively, but right up until the very end of this book, 66 chapters, man and man, there's still problems. Let's see that. Where's the place of his rest? Where's the house that you build to me? This is an end-time prophecy. What does he say in Haggai? The people will say, it's not time to build my house when God says it is time to build his house. So while he is still on earth and heaven, and his earth is still his footstool, just before this new heavens and new earth that he's just introduced comes to pass, there's still going to be some problems. Where's my house, God says? Well, Haggai says, leave your fine homes and come build mine. And he's going to stir a people to do that. For all those things is my hand made, and all those things have been, says the Eternal. God had made houses for himself before, through Solomon and others. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. See, there's no room in there for spiritual pride and vanity, and I'm a Philadelphian. I have nothing wrong with it. Don't they all say, God doesn't have anything bad to say about Philadelphians? He has something bad to say about all the other churches, not Philadelphians, so I'm a Philadelphian. Is there any spiritual pride and vanity and ego there? The moment you say with that attitude, I'm a Philadelphian, you are a Laodicea. Because that is the ultimate of spiritual pride and vanity. It is not the attitude of being poor and contrite in spirit and trembling at God's words. Brethren, when we read this chapter, we should shake in our boots. When we see things happen, like that horrible thing in Wisconsin last week, we should tremble in our boots because it could just as easily be us and it is going to spread throughout the whole church. Maybe not in exactly that same way, but ultimately it will end in the great tribulation. And most will die who go there. It is something we need to learn from and get rid of our spiritual vanity and pride and self-deception and thinking we're better than anyone else and become contrite and poor in spirit and tremble at God's word. It's the exact same message Jesus Christ gave at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.3. He that kills an ox is as if he slew a man. 
He that sacrifices a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. In other words, God says, if you don't tremble at my word and you are not contrite and poor in spirit, you might think you're making some righteous sacrifices. I'll sacrifice a lamb. But God says you might as well just be cutting off a dog's head for all the good it does spiritually. If the attitude is wrong, if the attitude is in spiritual pride and vanity, anything we do that we think is a righteous offering or sacrifice to God, he looks upon as an unclean thing. That's why Haggai says that the ministry must make a difference between the clean and the unclean. He that offers an oblation is if he offered swine's blood. We might as well take an offer of swine, as Antiochus Epiphanes did, and sacrifice it on the altar and let the swine's blood run down the altar of God if we are not of a poor and contrite spirit and tremble at all his words. Not just the ones we like, but all of them. Live by every word of God. He that burns incense as if he blessed an idol thinks he's putting up a nice, fine incense to God. His prayer would be a wonderful prayer to God. God says if you don't forgive and love your brother and have mercy on your brother, he will have no mercy on you. He will not forgive you. So you can hold grudges and feelings toward other people and offer up your prayers thinking you're praying to your God in righteousness and he says you might as well be burning it to Baal. Because that's all the good it'll do. Yes, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. They're not really looking to see what God wants right now. And God does not look upon the works of most of what is happening in the church as something that pleases him. Hear the word of the eternal, you that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake. That's happened in the past, it's going to happen again. Those who are contrite, those who do tremble at God's word, are going to be hated and rejected. Be it known, brethren, if you humble yourself, if you tremble at God's word, if you change your life to look like God instead of this world, you will be hated and rejected. God's word right here. They'll cast you out for his name's sake. But hear God's word. He says, let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. God says it'll turn out right. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the church, a voice of the Lord that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who has heard of such a thing? We have just now really entered the pain and the labor of delivering Christ in us. It will seem like but a moment when it is over. Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. God says this is going to be a short period of time we're going through. Seems long to us, perhaps. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? Are we going to begin to question God and say, look at all this pain we're going through. 
God says, am I going to put you through this and not bring forth? No. Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says your God? He's not that kind of God. He's going to deliver us. Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you that love her. All that love the church, be glad and rejoice because God is going to cause this thing to happen. He uses the birth of righteousness in the church and his blessing showered upon it in the analogy of a woman giving birth. Rejoice you that love with her, or love her and all you that mourn for her, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations. A woman forgets the pain when the baby is born and put on the breast because a man-child is brought into the world, or a girl for that matter. That you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. God is going to glorify his church, the mother. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall you suck. You shall be born upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. The bride, the mother, is going to comfort the whole world. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. He's going to resurrect or change the church, 144,000, when he returns, take her to his throne for a year, to have a honeymoon and to marry, or marry and have a honeymoon, and he will turn his anger against everything that is left here. The seven last plagues will occur. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to re render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Remember, he's coming down on a horse with his vesture dipped in blood. He comes as one red from Edom, as Isaiah 63 says, with blood. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens, that is, deceive themselves and tell themselves they're just fine. Behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouth shall be consumed together, says the Eternal whether they be in the church or out of the church. If they're imbibing of the unclean, they will be destroyed. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall, see, they shall come and see my glory. When he comes to this earth and destroys many and sets up his kingdom, then they're all going to come to look and see what this is all about. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. Those who escape are going to be sent to convert and to teach. I will send those that escape of them to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pull and Lud, and that draw the bow, to Tubal and Jabin, to the isles far off, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles, as kings and priests, that could be us. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Eternal, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. We'll go out there, we'll clean them up, we'll help them, we'll straighten them out and we'll bring them before God in a clean vessel instead of an unclean one. 
God will make a final separation between the clean and the unclean. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain, eternal life. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. Here again, flesh is in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not like we thought. The new heavens and new earth come at the beginning of the millennium, as Revelation 21 clearly shows, and a comparison of 1 Peter, uh, where it talks about the heavens and earth being destroyed, compares to Isaiah 24, and few men left. Ellen G. White had her desolate earth theory, thinking that all inhabitants of the earth would be burned. But even those scriptures she used in Isaiah 24 show that few men would be left. And at the end of this age, a few men will be left, and they will be flesh and blood. But God will bring a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be the holy city that comes down with Christ, as Revelation 21 shows. And all flesh will come to worship before God, who is on the earth at that time. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. Not all burned up. The carcasses will still be there when the new heaven and the new earth is established. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. Ends on a note in Isaiah 66, 66 chapter, about man and what will happen to man. It shows that those who will obey God will have eternal life and rule on this earth and bring peace and happiness and establish it. But mankind, if he does not choose God, will be abhorred by everyone. And he leaves it on that note. Isaiah is a very inspiring book, and yet there's a very dire warning in it as well, that we should seek God with our whole hearts here at the end, so that we might be a part of the new heavens and the new earth.